Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley. We know that chronic inflammation is at the root of every single degenerative disease. And so if we're going to thrive in life, we've got to do things to help encourage a healthy inflammation response in our body. One of the best ways we can do that is take herbs that help support inflammation and keep inflammation under control. The most well-studied herb for doing that is turmeric. Turmeric inhibits the inflammatory nuclear factor kappa beta and STAT3 pathways. These are genetic pathways that amplify inflammation in our body. And by inhibiting these, turmeric really helps support good blood flow, joint health, brain function, our ability to think sharply and quickly and have good memory, mood, and just an overall good mindset. Now, when it comes to taking turmeric, you know, certainly we can be putting it on our, our food, you know, and taking food-based uh, forms of turmeric, right? A lot of people will use the most well-studied compound, which is curcumin. However, what we know is that whole food-based turmeric has nearly 300 other beneficial components than just curcumin alone. And so again, curcumin is extremely powerful. But the research shows that taking a whole food-based turmeric complex can be much more beneficial. Now, the problem with turmeric is that it notoriously has low bioavailability on its own, and the body has a hard time absorbing it. It really needs a good soluble fat to absorb it. And that's why Paleo Valley, with their turmeric complex, they added coconut oil. I mean, you think about like a like a curry with turmeric and coconut oil, and it's got different warming herbs, black pepper. You know, it's a, a, a popular Indian dish, the curry. That's really what allows it to absorb the best, the fat, the warming herbs. And that's what Paleo Valley did when they created their turmeric complex. They added coconut oil, they added black pepper, and that combination has been shown to increase the absorption of turmeric by 2,000%. On top of that, they also added in ginger, rosemary, and cloves, which are herbs that really support brain, brain function. They support healthy inflammation, immune health, good digestion, and blood sugar stability. So you get all of that in the Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex. I'm a huge advocate of this supplement. I take it on a regular basis. And you can take it now as well and get a special discount. In fact, go to paleovalley.com forward slash drjockers. And use the coupon code JOCKERS, just my last name, JOCKERS at checkout. That will save you 15% off your order. So guys, if you want to keep inflammation under control and really thrive in life, try out the Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex today. Again, use the coupon code JOCKERS at checkout to save 15%. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We got another great Q&A for you guys where we're going to talk about some of the most frequent questions that we get. And we pull these from YouTube, from Instagram, from Facebook. So all my different social media channels. If you have major health questions, you can always post them and they may end up on this show. You know, we just kind of grab a bunch 
that uh, that really stuck out to us. And we do our best to try to answer these and give a really thorough answer, but actionable steps help you understand the situation, the circumstances that you're dealing with and give you actionable steps. Today, we're going to be talking about issues with blood sugar. I know that was one of the main questions. Hashimoto's, thyroiditis. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about statin drugs, which are commonly prescribed for cholesterol. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're also going to talk about female hair loss, fatigue, anemia, fibromyalgia. So we got some great questions coming in here. And I am with Dr. Bujaude, Dr. Yvonne Bujaude, who's working with us at drjockers.com. She is an amazing natural natural health doctor that uh, works with people all over the world and does an incredible job uh, coaching them, coaching them to success, customizing uh, detailed programs for them to help help them overcome and and uh, to help them really thrive in life. And so she is a wealth of knowledge. She has previously been on this podcast. We talked all about the web of mental health issues. Uh, which is one of the things that she's a specialist in, but she really is great at working with all different types of conditions. And she's going to help me with this Q&A and we're going to go deep into some of these questions. So again, thank you guys for asking these. You can always post them up on YouTube, on Instagram, you know, wherever wherever you find me. And also you can email us at info at drjockers.com and your question may end up on the show. So with that said, Dr. Bujaudi, I call her Dr. B., um, or Dr. Yvonne, either one will work, right? Welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Jockers. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be here with you and helping you answer all the wonderful questions you receive on a daily basis. And what I love is not only will you answer these questions, but you will provide actionable steps. That is really the key. That's what people are looking for, not only knowledge, but how to apply that knowledge. And that is what where the power uh, lies. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's jump right into the, the first question. Sure. This is Mary on Instagram. She says, how do you deal with issues of hypoglycemia? I also have periods of high blood sugar, then big dips of hypoglycemia. Yeah. So hypoglycemia means too low blood sugar, but she also said that she'll have periods where her blood sugar goes too high. And so we call this blood sugar dysregulation or another term, a medical term is dysglycemia, um, where, you know, we just have abnormal amounts of insulin and our body is just struggling to create a good balance when it comes to blood sugar. And so there's a couple of big things that we want to look at here. Um, one of them is really look, let's look at the nutrition, you know, oftentimes when we're having issues like this, there's just too much processed carbohydrates or there's foods that are triggering, uh, inflammatory reactions, right? So immune reactions, common food sensitivities, things like gluten, dairy, um, you know, processed sugar, corn, soy. We want to look at these types of things and see if those are in the diet. And then when we start to set up a good nutrition plan here, a blood sugar stabilizing nutrition plan, I always recommend try you know three major changes. Number one, uh, getting rid of sugar and grains. Number two is getting rid of processed fats or really refined seed oils. That's going to be your corn oil, soybean, cotton seed oil, uh, safflower oil. Uh, peanut oil, corn oil. So all of those seed oils, we get rid of those and we load up with good fats. So it's going to be avocados, extra virgin olive oil, olives, um, grass-fed butter. Uh, if you're able to tolerate dairy, then grass-fed butter can be great. 
Uh, tallow, beef tallow can be fantastic. Coconut milk, coconut oil, those are really good healthy fats. And then the third thing is do your best to try to get grass-fed uh, animal products, grass-fed, pasture-raised animal products, because that really reduces your overall toxic load. There's a lot of herbicides, pesticides that are bioaccumulated in your grain-fed, conventionally raised animal products. So we try to go grass-fed. And then in the meals, I recommend trying to get about 30 grams of protein in each meal, right? 30 grams of protein. And then depending on how well you, you digest fat, some people don't have a gallbladder or if they consume, let's say, you know, 30, 40 grams of fat in a meal, they get their stool floats, they feel really tired, they get itchy skin. If that's you, then we cut it back, right? Maybe 15 or 20 grams. But ideally, the ideal range is somewhere between 20 to 35 or 40 grams of healthy fats in a meal, 30 to 40 grams of protein in a meal. And so when you when you do that, when you get the healthy fats and then you also get the protein, that's gonna create blood sugar stability. You're gonna get less of an insulin rise and you're gonna have more stability and you're gonna have less of those hypoglycemic episodes because your blood sugar is gonna stay much more stable. So to kind of summarize that, we want to make sure those macronutrients are in alignment, that we're cutting out sugars, processed foods, common food sensitivities like gluten for some individuals, dairy, particularly um, you know, dairy proteins like cheese and stuff like that. Some people really, really react poorly to that. And uh, But we're still trying to get a lot of good proteins, a lot of good healthy fats in the meal. So that's kind of the foundation of where I start. What, what comes to your mind there, Dr. B.? Yes, that is wonderful. I think that nutrition plays a very important role in regulating blood sugar. And in addition to that, one of the things that we don't speak a lot uh, often is sleep. Mm. Sleep is our reset button. Not only, you know, it, it just resets our hormones and it resets our brain and it has a lot of functions, but it's also very crucial when you want to regulate blood sugar. And it's so interesting because what you do during the day is going to affect how you're going to sleep. So they are so intricate. And so say, for example, if your blood sugar is dysregulated during the day, guess what? You're not going to sleep well. So then if, if you're not sleeping well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a hard time regulating your blood sugar. So it's important that we consider both. And a lot of things, you know, one of the things that hypoglycemia can cause is poor sleep as well as, you know, in both cases. So it's very important that we take a look at both the sleep what, and what you eat during the day. Another thing that comes to mind is be keeping very, very well hydrated. A lot of times when we feel like we're hungry, it's because we're dehydrated. And when we feel hungry, um, because we're dehydrated, we may go and eat more food when in reality, our body's saying, hey, I'm thirsty. And so water helps us um, you know, keep that appetite under control. And it also helps us clear excess uh, sugar. And another thing that is so important is exercise. I mean, exercise will help you regulate your blood sugar as well. And one of the things that is going to help you is producing energy. So you're going to feel like you need less food and it will help you regulate your blood sugar, right? And another thing that it, I think of is stress. And you kind of mentioned stress as you were talking about food sensitivities because food sensitivities are stressful to the body. 
And so whenever we have stress, we cause our blood sugar to spike or to be sometimes steadily high. So another thing, another strategy is to manage your stress. And so that's what I think about, about regulating blood sugar. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of people will ask me, well, if I have regular episodes of hypoglycemia, should I be doing intermittent fasting? And what I would say is in the beginning, no, but our goal is to get you to the point where you're metabolically flexible enough to be able to do that and get the great benefits that come with intermittent fasting. So in the beginning, what we'll start with is, you know, you wake up in the morning, you hydrate well, like Dr. B was saying, I always recommend drinking you know, eight to 16 ounces of water before you put anything in your, you know, before you eat anything. So you hydrate well, you can also take a little bit of salt. So a lot of times people that struggle with hypoglycemia also can be a little electrolyte deficient and they actually will need a little bit more salts and that can help stabilize your adrenals a little bit more effectively as well. So a little bit of salt on your tongue, drink your water, hydrate well, and then roughly 30 to 30 minutes to an hour after you wake up, have a high protein, high fat breakfast, like I was talking about. Um, so eggs can be good if you're able to tolerate eggs or a good protein shake, for example, with maybe coconut milk and um, like a really good quality protein powder. You could do something along those lines. Um, and then, you know, roughly four to five hours later. So if you get enough protein, enough fat, it should be able to stabilize your blood sugar for roughly four to five hours. However, if somehow, you know, between meals, even when you're staying hydrated, which is typically the issue, a lot of times people will start having cravings or they'll start getting dizzy or having headaches, but they're really dehydrated between in, in between meals. As long as you're staying hydrated, you should be satiated for four to five hours. If for some reason you start noticing symptoms of hypoglycemia like um, headaches, nausea, cravings, um, anger, just inability to control your emotions, then I would recommend eating a little bit earlier, right? So eating in three hours, let's say again, another high protein, high healthy fat meal. If you're doing that, let's say every three to four hours, right? Consuming or, or even up to five hours. Uh, if you do that over the course of about a week, you should be able to get really good blood sugar stability and actually start creating more metabolic flexibility where you're able to go a little bit longer between meals. Right. So that is really the key is starting out by cutting down the carbs, cutting down bad foods, really focusing in on the protein, the fats, the healthy lifestyle stuff that you talked about, Dr. B, keeping the stress under control, sleep, right? Getting all of those things dialed in, getting enough electrolytes, sometimes magnesium. There's magnesium deficiencies that are often associated with this. That's usually one of the first supplements that I will give somebody that's really struggling with a lot of blood sugar issues like this. Um, but getting all of that in balance, uh, after about a week, most people notice they're not having hypoglycemia anymore. And now they're able to extend the period of time between meals. So they may do a breakfast at 7 a.m. and they may be able to go you know, until 12 or one o'clock uh, and not feel hungry, right? And then break their you know, little fast there, consume a good meal, and then be able to go to five, six o'clock. So in general, I'm not a big fan of snacking. However, if somebody does have a lot of blood sugar dysregulation like this, in the beginning, when they first start, we may end up doing four, five, maybe even six meals to get the blood sugar stable, doing it with the protein and the fats. And then from there, starting to pare it down, getting it down to three meals a day. And then once we're good there and we're creating blood sugar stability, then we may compress that eating window. So we may take it from, let's say, a 12-hour eating window where you're eating from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and try to compress it down to a 
10 hour eating window, right? Maybe they, you don't start breakfast till 9am or you eat a early dinner, right? And then we get more benefits of improving metabolic flexibility, fat burning, keeping insulin under control, even more getting more autophagy. So we can go from there as far as finding out, um, you know, the, the best window for the time restricted feeding, but the beginning starts with getting that blood sugar, stabilizing nutrition plan and getting your lifestyle under control. Perfect. I love it. Very thorough. Well, that opens the door to the next question. Yep. It is Amy on Instagram. What is the safest way to do intermittent fasting for Hashimoto's disease? Yeah. So this is a great question. So Hashimoto's first off, that is an autoimmune thyroid disorder. So basically the body is attacking, the immune system is attacking the thyroid tissue. And so by the time you get diagnosed with, with Hashimoto's, mm -hmm. You have had autoimmunity for you know a period of time, right? And oftentimes it's been years, and a level of you know basically there's been a lot of damage that's occurred to the thyroid tissue. Now the body's always trying to heal itself and repair itself, but what we got to do is get the antibodies uh, to the thyroid tissue down as well as we can. And so intermittent fasting can really support this because intermittent fasting is one of the best things we can do to get inflammation under control. And it's one of the best things we can do to get rid of senescent or old damaged, we call them zombie cells, zombie immune cells that are sputtering out lots and lots of inflammatory debris and causing more damage in the body. So theoretically, intermittent fasting can be a great uh, approach for somebody with Hashimoto's. However, the issue here is that for some individuals, you know, when you go, when you, for example, when you are doing some level of time restricted feeding or fasting, you may tell the body, okay, food is not, uh, we're not in a time of where food is very prevalent. And therefore, in a sense, the body says, okay, maybe we need to go into like a hibernation mode. So it stops producing as much thyroid hormone. And that is the concern. And that's why some people will say, well, you know, there, there are, there are influencers out there that say people with Hashimoto's or thyroid issues should never fast. Right. And I, I completely disagree with that. I definitely think they can. However, we got to be intelligent in the way that we go about it. So biggest thing is going back to what I talked about with hypoglycemia. It's kind of the same thing. We've got to make sure we're consuming during our eating window, enough good quality calories, right? So, you know, if your body does well on 2000 calories a day, which is kind of the average for an average individual, you want to make sure you're consuming those 2000 calories a day. And I recommend a diet that is high in protein and healthy fats, right? You should be roughly getting, you know, at least about a gram or about a half a gram, I'm sorry, a gram of protein for about half your body weight, right? So if you weigh 200 pounds, then you want to get at least hundred grams of protein in a day. Now, one gram of protein is four calories, so if you're eating 2000 calories a day, it's only, you know, four times one times, uh, well, four times hundred grams. So that's 400 calories. So it's actually not, not that much. Some people will think, think that they think about hundred grams of protein. That's a lot of protein. It's actually not that much. That's only roughly 20%, uh, or in this case, that would be 25% of, uh, you know, your total caloric needs for the day. So that's actually not that much. You can actually get a lot more than that and do totally fine, right? I see a lot of people that will get a gram of protein per pound of body weight, or at least per pound of lean body mass, and they end up thriving. They end up burning fat more effectively, 
building muscle tissue and reducing inflammation. So a higher protein diet and also getting a high more fats and cutting down on the carbs. Now, it doesn't mean we get rid of carbs altogether. Some people do, do better on a little bit of carbs, but we're getting them from healthier foods, things like root vegetables, um, fruit, right? Things like that. So those are healthier than doing getting carbs from grains, for example. So we're getting them from those other things, but we're prioritizing the protein and the healthy fats, getting at least 30 to 40 grams of protein, you know, roughly 30 to 40 grams of healthy fats in each meal. Again, if you do have bad fat digestion, like you can just feel really sluggish, we can cut that down a little bit. But as a general rule, find that a lot of people do really well with a ratio somewhere in, in, in that range. Doing that with your meals and with Hashimoto's, I would recommend doing three meals and in the beginning, doing it in a 10 hour eating window, meaning you eat your first meal at let's say 8 a.m. You finish your last meal by 6 p.m. So you have 14 hours overnight fasting, 10 hours where you're eating three meals in that 10 hour window. It's a great place to start. Okay. And you should start to feel better as long as you're doing all the other lifestyle fat things. You should start to feel better and move in the right direction. And then you can compress your eating window further. You might try an eight hour eating window, right? And you might notice that you just feel like your inflammation is going down. The key is making sure again, that you're consuming enough calories in that eight hour window. Okay. So that's kind of where we like to start with intermittent fasting. And then from there, we can play around with it and we can do shorter windows you know, we may even do, you know, uh, a partial fast for three or five days to really um, turn up autophagy and deep cellular healing. But in the beginning, we just want to create a level of metabolic flexibility. We want to get it to where your body can comfortably do a 14 to 16 hour fast and consume three really good quality meals in a compressed eating window. What do you have to say with, with it, Dr. B? Perfect. Well, I see a lot of people with Hashimoto's having a blood sugar dysregulation. Hmm. So, you know, your point about making sure that their blood sugar is regulated prior to starting their fast is huge because you don't want to continue dysregulating a number of things. So I think I would emphasize that. And uh, I love the fact that fasting is not excluded for people that have an autoimmune condition like um, Hashimoto's, but it actually can be a benefit if you know how to go about it. Yeah, for sure. And as long as the body, as long as you have enough calories over, let's say a 24 or 48 hour period, your body's not going to suppress thyroid hormone production. So that is actually a myth. So the key is, and this is where a lot of people go wrong is they start intermittent fasting and they go on a low carb diet. And oftentimes they, their appetite is suppressed, meaning that they don't feel hungry. And so therefore they eat just a lower and lower amount. And now they're eating, you know, a thousand calories, 1200 calories in a day. And if you're doing that for a longer period of time, your body may sense that, wow, food is not readily available. We're in a season of famine and in a season of famine, we want to turn down metabolism, right? We want to become more thrifty and therefore we turn down thyroid hormone activation and that can be a factor there, right? But as long as we're consuming the calories, should be totally fine. Your body will continue to produce the thyroid hormone and the intermittent fasting will help reduce the amount of antibodies and overall inflammation in the body. Um, and there's other things that we need to do, you know? So we know with Hashimoto's, 
is oftentimes vitamin D deficiencies. There's a lot of issues going on with the gut that we want to address, maybe probiotics. Um, there may be SIBO or parasites or you know different infections in the gut that we want to address. And so fasting can, you know, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding can be a great kind of foundational plan while you work with a functional health practitioner, somebody like Dr. B, um, to help get to the root cause, right? And what is really driving up the antibodies and what sort of nutrient deficiencies may be available or infections or toxins that you may be exposed to that are, that are causing your body to respond like this. Absolutely. And one more thing, uh, you were talking about the foods that we need to prioritize, such as uh, or the uh, protein and fats. And, uh, and another thing, a lot of people kind of forget about the other part that we want them to eat, which is complex carbohydrates. And the more variety of colors and fibers, the better you support your microbiome. And remember, our immune system 80% of our immune system resides in our microbiome. So it's so, so important to have a good variety. And how do we do that? By eating a variety of fibers. So as you're fasting, think about how you may rotate your different fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds and legumes so that you will support your microbiome as you're fasting and getting the benefits of that eating window. I just want to interrupt this podcast to tell you how important your immune system is and how it protects you from viruses, bacteria, parasites, and other pathogens. You see, your body was created to overcome the challenges from the environment. However, you must be an active participant and work to make your body stronger and more resilient to stress. And that is why I created our 10-in-1 Immunocharge formula because it's designed to help you do that. As I was studying the immune system, I found that there are critical nutrients that really support your body and give you more immune modulating power. These include things like quercetin, resveratrol, vitamin D, vitamin A, selenium, zinc, vitamin C, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin K2, and magnesium. And I used to supplement with all of these. I was taking 14 different capsules to get all these critical nutrients. And that is why I designed a product called Immunocharge. I actually put all of these nutrients in their clinical dosages that actually work in your body that are research-based. And all you have to do is take four capsules a day. So I take two capsules twice a day to help strengthen my immune function, to help keep inflammation under control. And so this really works and it really helps. It's called Immunocharge. You can actually get 30% off by going to store.drjockers.com forward slash products forward slash immunocharge, I-M-M-U-N-O-C-H-A-R-G-E and use the coupon code immune30 at checkout to save 30% off on immunocharge. Whatever you do, you've got to take you got to do everything you can to keep your immune system as strong and healthy as possible so you can be resilient to the different environmental stressors you face. Immunocharge is there to help you with that. Again, go to store.drjockers.com forward slash products forward slash Immunocharge. Use the coupon code Immune30 at checkout to save 30% off today. Let's go into the next question. Perfect. It says, um, Lisa on Instagram says, I recently started incorporating more protein and fat, but actually feel way more tired, bloated, and constipated. 
what do you think is going on and what recommendations do you have? Yeah, this is a really great question. So there's a couple of things here. So, and, th and these are a couple of tests. When, when I see somebody respond like this, the first thing I'll have them do is what I call the steak test. I want them to eat a lean steak and it's lean for a reason. So it's not very high fat, but it's very high protein. They eat a lean steak, let's say six ounces of steak, and then they wait, you know, three or four hours and just see how they feel. Normally you eat a steak, six ounce steak. You're getting a lot of good protein in there. You're getting a lot of nutrients and, and minerals and B vitamins. You should feel good. You should feel very, very stable. It's a low carb meal. It's um, should be very stabilizing on your blood sugar and you should feel good. If you feel bloated, if you have indigestion, brain fog, um, gas, right? All different types of symptoms like that, skin issues, itching. This could be a sign that you're not producing enough stomach acid, right? So I have to, then we have to start looking at ways that we can improve stomach acid. The other test I like to look at is what we call a fat bomb test. So a fat bomb, if you're not familiar with it, just go to our site and type in fat bomb. We've got a recipe for it, um, but they're all over the internet. Um, you know, with the rise in the keto diet, a lot of people started making these fat bombs, which are basically like a combination of coconut, butter, so it's like a, it's basically high fat, almost no protein, no carbs, uh, just fat and fat and fiber basically. And it's coconut oil. And a lot of times they have chocolate in them. It tastes good. And they're like 300 calories, mostly fat. And so if you consume that and you feel really tired and bloated, okay, that's a sign you're not producing enough bile. And oftentimes, you know, you'll see one person do great with the steak, do bad with the fat bomb, right? Or they'll do you know, decent with the fat bomb, not good with the steak, or, or oftentimes both in combination. So then we know we need to address these things. And so one thing you can do before your meal is consume some apple cider vinegar, right? So take apple cider vinegar, two tablespoons and about eight ounces of water, drink that about 10 minutes before your meal. And that will stimulate the production of stomach acid, bile, pancreatic enzymes, and help you metabolize that higher protein, higher fat meal more effectively. So that's one thing you can do. If you don't notice any results there, another thing you can do is drink ginger tea throughout the day. Okay, that can be helpful. You can also do some different things to activate your vagus nerve, which stimulates the production of uh, hydrochloric acid and bile and pancreatic enzymes. You could do something like gargling, actually, or singing really loud, um, something along those lines. Actually, it you know it activates the palate, which is controlled by the vagus nerve, which also also controls your production of uh, stomach acid and bile. And also make sure that when you do sit down for a meal, you take a couple deep breaths, you relax, put your 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 body in a place where you're relaxed, right? And that will help stimulate the production of these digestive juices. So if you do those things and you're still not noticing, you know, any improvement, you're still struggling with these issues, then we've got to look at, um, you know, perhaps there are certain infections that may be contributing to these problems. For example, you may have an H. pylori infection in your stomach that's shutting down your body's own ability to produce stomach acid. So we might want to look at that and do some, some testing to see if there is H. pylori, or, or you may have parasites that are in your liver um, or affect, or in your small intestine, affecting your ability to digest these meals. So we can do testing. We can also do a trial run with betaine HCL and bile, right? Ox bile. And so we have a supplement called Super Digest HCL 
that we'll use. And we may add some of that in, especially, you know, in, in our previous Q&A, we did a whole thing on apple cider vinegar. And if you notice burning when you take apple cider vinegar, burning in your stomach, it's a sign you may have um, uh, a, a damaged gastric lining, right? And then, then you wouldn't want to add HCL. Then we've got to, you basically have an ulcer if that's the case, and we've got to start to address that and heal that. However, if you don't notice any burning, then you may be a candidate for using BT and HCL, and that can really support you. So you're adding in supplemental stomach acid to help support you as you break down the protein and the fat, okay? And of course, until we figure out kind of the right ratio or the right things to do, we may just reduce the amount of overall, particularly fat, okay, um, and perhaps protein. And we may instead do, do a little bit more with like protein shakes, things where there's already like pre-digested protein as, uh, you know, instead of doing something like a, a hard to eat protein like steak. You can even do like, for example, in the GAPS diet, they'll do things like they'll do well-cooked protein where you cook chicken, you make like a chicken soup and the chicken uh, or the turkey comes to the point where it's like just flaking off your fork. So it's broken down really, really well in a soup or a stew. And that tends to be more well tolerated by people that have compromised digestive digestive issues. But these symptoms definitely tell me there's something going on with stomach acid, bile flow, and overall um, digestive health. Yes, absolutely. That that's those were the thoughts for myself as well. And another thing that I would like to emphasize with people that have digestive issues, one thing that we forget a lot of times is how to eat. We just think that we just need to eat so that we can have more energy and get on with our day. And many times we start by um, eating fast or eating on the road. Uh, we call it dash, dashboard eating. And so that will damage your ability to digest foods because we need, like you mentioned, you need to be calm and relaxed for your vagus nerve to stimulate those um, uh, juices to you know, digest your food. So it's so important that you are calm and relaxed. And if, if you are stressed, um, that's not the time to eat a steak. That's the time to probably have a shake. And that's the time, like you said, take a couple of breaths, maybe listen to some music and just, you know, wait until you're relaxed so that you can digest your food properly. Yeah, that's great. It's so important uh, that people understand that, you know, the idea of fast food is like the worst thing ever. We should never be eating fast, right? <laughs> so we want to eat good quality food. And then we want to make sure we're putting our body in a state, a physiological state where we're ready to digest it. I know Dr. B, you and I are big fans of praying before our meal. What are we doing when we're praying? We're we're putting our body, we're putting ourselves in a state of gratitude. We're offering thanks, and that itself stimulates that parasympathetic nervous system, which gets those digestive juices going and helps you digest your meal more effectively. That's not really why we do it, but we'll take that side benefit as well. Next question. I've been taking statin three years for three years. I noticed I've been having dry skin dermatitis, plus very itchy leg occasionally, and I'm oily skin. I recently read that statins can cause my symptoms. I temporarily stopped statin, and I was taking about 40 milligrams. Can I replace it with coenzyme Q10 instead of statins to help cholesterol? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. So, you know, we know statins are the best-selling cholesterol-lowering medication, and statins, unfortunately, have a lot of side effects. And, you know, as a natural health doctor, I am not at all a fan of uh, statin drugs, cholesterol-lowering medications. You know, in this show, obviously, I can't give medical advice as far as coming off of statin medications and things like that. It's something you need to consult your doctor with. However, what I do know, just looking at the physiology is that 99.999%, in fact, you know, I've never seen a case where statin drugs were needed, right, for, for somebody. Um, and so we know that high cholesterol is not the cause, root cause of heart disease. Instead, cholesterol is more of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that is part of a plaque but cholesterol itself is actually a bus bringing valuable nutrients and phospholipids to all the cells of the body. So it's actually bringing really precious cargo to all the different cells of the body. And the reason why somebody might have high cholesterol, um, you know, is not because their body's just making all this bad cholesterol, right? It's really a body's trying to adapt and trying to put its put, trying to it's trying to deal with inflammation, right? And it's trying to get the cargo, get the key nutrients to the cells. And so when it comes to statin drugs, I've seen a lot of people go off of these medications with no side effects. You know, there's no like withdrawal, like there are with some medications, um, antidepressants, for example, you wouldn't want to just go off of those cold turkey. Whereas with a statin drug, if, you, if you're taking it, if you've been taking it for years and you come off of it, you're not going to notice any symptoms coming off of it. There's no real symptoms that are associated with it. However, um, what you do want to do is make sure you're following a healthy lifestyle. And the big thing when it comes to cholesterol and triglyceride levels, you know, there's a couple of big nutrition changes that you want to make sure you're making. Number one is making sure you're coming, cutting out the sugar, the high fructose corn syrup, right? All added sugars, reducing the amount of starch that you're consuming. So that's always number one. Number two is getting rid of refined seed oils, corn, soybean. You know, I mentioned all these earlier. You definitely want to make sure you're coming off of those. And number three, making sure you're doing your best to get grass-fed, pasture-raised animal products, wild-caught seafood, um, trying to get the most pure uh, sources of the food that you're consuming. So I think that's always really, really key. Getting a lot of good regular exercise is super important. Sleeping well. Um, a lot of the lifestyle things that we already talked about are super important. Now, the question was, does CoQ10 replace statins? Well, CoQ10 is something that gets basically your body is not able to produce CoQ10 effectively when you are taking a statin. It inhibits uh, CoQ10 production. So if you are taking a statin, you definitely need to take CoQ10 because it's critical for energy production in all the cells of your body. However, CoQ10 has a lot, a lot of different functions than statin medications. So just taking CoQ10 alone is not going to lower your cholesterol or create, you know, the, the, the proper LDL to HDL ratio or proper triglyceride to HDL ratio. So it doesn't, it's not a replacement for it. However, it can really support your mitochondria, improve your energy production. Um, it can help with keeping inflammation under control. So there are a lot of great benefits to taking coenzyme Q10, and it may be very warranted for you as far as uh, some of the symptoms you're experiencing. You may feel better in general taking it, but it's not replacing the statin drug. Uh, with that said, um, you know you may not necessarily need that statin drug. When I look at cholesterol, LDL to HDL, 
you know, I really don't care where total cholesterol is. Okay. What I'm looking at more so is your, the most important thing I look at is your triglyceride to HDL ratio. How many parts of triglyceride do you have <clears throat> compared to how many HDL? That should always be two or less, and ideally pretty close to one, meaning one part triglyceride, one part HDL. So, you know, if your triglycerides are 150 <clears throat> and your HDL is 50, that's bad, right? That's a sign you have insulin resistance, you have high blood fats, you have high inflammation, high, high amount of visceral fat on your body. So that's a bad thing. But if your triglycerides are 75 and your HDL is 65, that's good. It's a good ratio. I'm not worried about necessarily where your LDL is, if that's the case. And you guys can always check out, I've got some really great articles on cholesterol and how we look at that. Signs, you know, like if you do have real high LDL, what that may be, what that, what may be a factor in that. Um, and we can talk more about that, you know, and obviously there's articles with that as well. Dr. B, what are your thoughts? This is a very important question because, because cholesterol is very needed in our system. Um, so another thing that when I see cholesterol and triglycerides, uh, all the lipids kind of off, it tells me there's inflammation somewhere and I need to find it. So it's more important to find what is driving this than actually taking something to bring it down is kind of turning off the alarm system of your body because this is just telling you something is off something is not right let's do something about it so our job is to figure out why are you having your numbers they're not where they need to be or ideally where they need to be so that would be you know a sign we need to find where the inflammation is coming typically inflammation is coming number one from diet so if you have a very high uh diet of sugars and simple carbs that would be the first thing to correct because that will cause high cholesterol more in triglycerides than fat you know that i have there's still that old school where it says you know dietary cholesterol will rise your cholesterol level and that is not true so it's very important to know what is causing this? What is the driving factor so that you can implement dietary and lifestyle changes to correct that? Yeah, for sure. And again, and when I look at the ratios, triglycerides are probably the most important thing I look at. Triglycerides and HDL, you know, your HDL should definitely be up over 50. Triglycerides should really ideally be under 100. And that triglyceride to HDL ratio should be close to one, definitely under two. When somebody has real high LDL, which is considered the bad cholesterol, I don't necessarily get concerned about that. There's there's a couple of reasons why that may happen. Um, one of the most common is actually a thyroid issue, right? So we'll we'll want to rule out any sort of thyroid dysfunction because thyroid uh, thyroid hormone helps with LDL clearance and also helps with activating the LDL receptor on the different cells. So the bus taking all this precious cargo can actually dock at the cell and drop off its cargo. So if somebody has hypothyroidism, that can actually be a root cause of higher LDL, right? And if they're just taking a statin, they're never addressing the thyroid, that can be a major issue. So that's one thing I look at. If, if symptom-wise you feel fine, like there's actually a there's actually a response called the lean mass hyper-responder where, and, and I'm actually one of these types of individuals where I'm very, very lean, I'm very low body fat. Um, and when I'm on a low carb, higher fat diet, my LDL goes way up, right? But my triglycerides are super low, 
right? They're, you know, my triglycerides are like 65. The last time I checked, HDL is like 75. And so, but my LDL is high and this is called a lean mass hyper responder response. And there's no pathological condition associated with this. This is just something that how my body responds to that sort of a diet. And also I'm very active. And sometimes when you're very active, you need more cargo, right? You need more um, phospholipids. You need to repair cell membranes more. So you need more phospholipids. You need more fat soluble nutrients and things like that. Um, to bring out to the cell membranes. And so somebody that's very active, doing a lot of weightlifting in particular, uh, in some cases, they will have higher LDL. But again, the key is looking at that triglyceride to HDL ratio um, to look at that. Now, there are some other cases where I've seen, for example, saw where some people had certain food sensitivities like coffee, for example. And we took out coffee this individual's LDL went way down, right? And it was just the way their body was responding to, you know, this particular food. So, you know, there's a lot of nuance and there's there's variations with this, but what, what we need to take away from this is the idea that high LDL is really bad and needs to be lowered by a medication is an outdated idea. And what we need to really consider more so is what's happening with the rest of the body. Are you thriving or are you dealing with a lot of other symptoms related to inflammation and what do your triglycerides look like? And if we can address those things, then uh, we're really getting to the root cause. Right. And one more thing um, related to cholesterol, we tend to emphasize or be focused on how high your cholesterol is. And, you know, there's an issue we need to correct, but many times we forget to take a look of individuals that have low cholesterol and that's an issue because our brain needs cholesterol. We need a cholesterol to have healthy hormone function. We need good cholesterol to produce our vitamin D. So we also need to look at that. And, and that is often forgotten. And I have found that a lot of people that have brain-related disorders tend to have low cholesterol. So it's something that we do need to be aware of. And when we're dealing with brain-related disorders to see if our cholesterol is at a healthy level or optimally supporting the brain. Absolutely. And the idea that if you get your cholesterol under, total cholesterol under 200, it's going to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease is not true. It's not supported by the evidence. So um, even though it may, you know, on the lab, it, it will be marked as high if it's up over that. Um, you know, that reference range is really not backed by scientific research. So I wouldn't get overly concerned by that. But if you do want a deeper analysis of what's happening with your lipids, reach out to somebody like Dr. B that's been trained and knows how to read and interpret these and can help really guide you with the right lifestyle principles to take to really optimize, you know, your blood lipid levels. Perfect. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to let you know that if you were a coffee drinker, I have some critical information you need to know. You see, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants people are consuming all around the world. It's rich in chlorogenic and caffeic acid, which are polyphenols that stabilize your blood sugar, support gut health and improve your brain. And they also stimulate autophagy and deep cellular healing. So coffee has many amazing health benefits, but there's a dark side to coffee. It often carries mold, dangerous mycotoxins, and is heavily sprayed with pesticides that lead to chronic disease. 
It's also acidic, causing stomach issues, and many have to stop drinking coffee as they get older because it irritates their stomach lining. That's why I started drinking Life Boost Coffee. I wanted something that had all the health benefits with none of the mold and chemicals found in regular coffee. Plus, it's a shade-grown coffee, which is naturally a low-acid coffee that doesn't hurt my stomach. And they have hundreds of testimonials of people who couldn't stomach traditional coffee who can now enjoy coffee on a daily basis without any digestive discomfort. They also third-party test for 450-plus toxins, including mycotoxins, molds, heavy metals, pesticides, and even glyphosate, just to make sure it's the cleanest, healthiest cup they can provide to their customers. I also really like these guys because they build schools for their farmers' children near the coffee farms where they harvest their, their coffee beans. And their corporate sponsors are the Rainforest Trust to prevent deforestation and protect wildlife. They really care about the environment. And because you're listening to my podcast right now, you can get 50% off your first order by going to www.lifeboostdeal.com. That's lifeboostdeal.com. They are, again, shade-grown, low acid, clean and free of toxins, and they taste amazing. Just go to lifeboostdeal.com to get 50% off now. Okay, let's go to the next question. Do you feel tahini is healthy? Should we be concerned about ages if the, if the sesame seeds are roasted before being ground? Mm. So tahini is basically ground sesame seeds, right? And so is that healthy? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely healthier than a lot of things out there, that's for sure. Um, now we know that sesame seeds are going to be much higher in omega six fats and lower in omega threes. And so therefore, you know, that could possibly promote a little bit more inflammation in the body. So I wouldn't consider it like super healthy, like, you know, one of the, the, the core foundational components of your diet. However, you know, there are, are some other benefits. Teeny is high in vitamin E, for example, um, which is a fat soluble, uh, antioxidant that's good for your body. It's high in fiber. Um, I'm sure it's high in some other things. Those are the things that just come off the top of my head. Uh, so I don't think it's a terrible thing. I think if you're, you know, very inflamed and, and have an autoimmune condition, probably be good to avoid that till you get things under control. However, having a little bit of tahini from time to time, I think is fine. Now the question about the AGEs, right? So advanced glycation end products, are we producing them when, when I guess when it's roasted, was that the question? Like, yes. are we producing heterocyclic amines and things like that? Yes. Um, you know, I haven't researched that enough. It's certainly possible that you could. So it might be better to do a raw tahini. Okay. But again, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing. And I would recommend if you are consuming tahini, it's really good to consume, you know, with like fruit, for example. Um, like if you're doing any sort of nut butter, consume it with an antioxidant source like berries or some sort of fruit. Okay. It's got, you know, the, the nut butter has the nut or seed butter which is basically tahini's like sesame seed butter, more or less. Um, it has got, you know, fats, it's got protein in there. So combining it with something that's rich in antioxidants can help neutralize, you know, any sort of potential problems you might get from heterocyclic amines and other glycation end products that, that may have occurred during the cooking process. So that's how I would go about it. You know, and and for each individual, you know, for, for people that are pretty healthy, they probably do great with tahini. Um, I know it's also in hummus and things like that. 
Um, so they probably do great with it. But if you are very compromised in your gut, you have a lot of inflammation in your body, usually we'll do an elimination diet where we eliminate, you know, uh, seeds and things that are higher in omega-6 like that. What are your thoughts, Dr. B? Yeah, I think uh, including tahini in your diet is a very good thing. And of course, like anything, you don't want to overdo it because what I find is that some people overdo things. And again, we want to have variety. So if you enjoy tahini, that's wonderful. And it's best to find the raw kind. And then if you can also rotate tahini with maybe um, other nuts or seed butters, that would be great. And I know that tahini is, is, is very important in Middle Eastern foods. And so it's eaten frequently. So a good way of uh, improving is to use raw tahini. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yep. One more. Question. One more. What are the best foods to avoid and consume for anxiety and depression? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, you know, going back to blood sugar, I think that's critical. We talked a lot about things to to avoid when it comes to blood sugar. Or I'm sorry, when it comes to yeah, blood sugar in general, and that's gonna that's gonna parlay into anxiety and depression because we know blood sugar <laughs> imbalances are big when it comes to uh, anxiety and depression. And then we want to look at things that help reduce inflammation in the brain, omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, I would say wild-caught salmon, wild-caught seafood, you know, is going to be really good. Wild-caught salmon being the best because that's got omega-3 fats, long-chain omega-3s, as well as astaxanthin, which is this really powerful antioxidant that gives salmon their pink color. And it also can sit in and embed inside the double membrane of the mitochondria where it helps prevent against mitochondrial damage. And we know the brain tissue is so richly packed. All those cells are super packed with mitochondria. Their most mitochondria-rich uh, cells of the body are, are those neurons in the, in the brain. And we want to really protect them. And we know when people have anxiety and depression, there's a, there's an, a level of of inflammation in the brain and mitochondrial dysfunction. So astaxanthin, omega-3s, super good. And I would say other healthy fats, avocados um, are fantastic. We know they've got lutein and zeaxanthin, which are powerful carotenoid antioxidants that help support the brain. Um, we Extra virgin olive oil is one of the best things. You know, you've got this powerful polyphenol called oleocanthal that has uh, a lot of good research showing how it really protects brain tissue. There's another polyphenol in extra virgin olive oil as well called hydroxytyrosol, which um, is which passes through the blood-brain barrier very effectively and protects brain tissue, right? Protects uh, the neurons. So that's really powerful as well. So I would say those healthy fats and then good antioxidants, a lot of Colorful berries, right, can be really helpful with anthocyanins, oligic acid. So your raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, things like that can be really powerful as well. What are your thoughts there, Dr. B? Great. And yeah, you made a great point. You know, a lot of the problems or issues with depression and anxiety is not regulating your blood sugar. So number one, huge. And we'll do that with diet and, and it ties with the first question that we address. So that is taken care of. And what foods to avoid? Inflammatory foods, highly processed foods. Please avoid that. So it would be sugar. And a lot of what I have found is that a lot of people that suffer from anxiety and depression tend to uh, also be sensitive to gluten. So I would avoid gluten and I would avoid dairy. 
And so those would be the, the foods that I would avoid, um, as well as you mentioned, increasing your healthy fats, uh, increasing all your blues and, 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 uh, and purple color foods. Uh, they're very supportive for the brain. And I would also increase your leafy greens. You know, that helps you with methylation. And I see that a lot of people that suffer from brain-related disorders tend to have issues with methylation. So increasing those healthy leafy greens is, uh, is good as well as don't eat them by themselves. It's also helpful to add some olive oil or another kind of healthy oil so that you may be able to absorb it. Most definitely, I would yeah. do that. Um, so you pretty much cover everything. Yeah, so we went through a lot. Yeah, la one <laughs> last thing is uh, is actually dark chocolate can actually be really, yes. really good for your brain. Lots of polyphenols in there, including catechins, EGCG, just like what's in green tea, which is another good one. Um, so those catechins are really good. It's also theobromide, and um, there's also uh, there's also some other factors in there. PEAs that uh, support dopamine production, serotonin production. This is why people feel really good when they consume chocolate. You just want to make sure you get it with minimal or no sugar added, right? So yeah, um, dark chocolate. And I'm, I know some people have a hard time having it, but once you start eating it, you kind of acquire, you know, yeah. your 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 taste buds kind of start enjoying it. Yeah, for sure. So good. Well, guys, this has been another great Q&A. And if you're out there and you're struggling with health issues, definitely reach out to Dr. B. You can just find her on our website uh, under the health coaching. And Dr. B, what's your what's your email that people can it's reach out Dr. to? Dr. Yvonne is D-R-I-V-O-N-N-E at drjockers.com. There you go. Dr. Yvonne at drjockers.com. Uh, so just reach out to her if you have any questions. Um, if you're dealing with a health challenge, she can help customize a plan for you. She works with people all over the world through virtual, you know, just doing Zoom consults, phone consults with them, customizing programs for them to help reach their health goals. So definitely uh, feel free to reach out. And if you're struggling with health issues, don't hesitate. You know, every day you're suffering, it's just another day lost, right? So go out, get the help that you need. Thanks again for your time here, Dr. Yvonne. You were wonderful with uh, with this Q&A. And guys, we'll see you next month on the next Q&A. Be blessed, everybody. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.